Hello, I'm Lily Hyam. And I'm Gordon Johnston. Welcome to the Last Question Podcast, a production of DataFest, the ongoing series of data and artificial intelligence innovation events run by the Data Lab, Scotland's Innovation Centre for Data and AI, hosted by the University of Edinburgh. Today we're chatting to Stephanie Hare, a researcher, broadcaster and author focused on technology, politics and history. We're talking to her about her new book, Technology is Not Neutral, a short guide to technology ethics, which the Financial Times recently called one of the best tech books of the year so far. She contributes frequently to radio and television and has published in the Financial Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian and Observer, the Harvard Business Review and Wired. Stephanie is also appearing at Data Summit on the 3rd and 4th of November 2022 at the EICC in Edinburgh. She is indeed, and we can't wait to have her back at DataFest after her hugely popular talk at the 2019 festival. Remember that our listeners get an exclusive discount on tickets to Data Summit, so keep an ear out for the discount code later in the podcast. Before that, though, uh, Lily, you studied some pretty cutting-edge technologies at uni, you know, stuff like brain-computer interfaces and whatnot. How big of a focus was put on the ethics behind them? Hmm. Um, not actually that much. Um, we did, we looked at how it worked technically. We did do some philosophy around it to do with like the extended mind. Um, but I don't remember looking at ethics that much. I did have a section in my dissertation about ethics, but it was quite small. I don't remember very well, but this shows (laughs) how maybe there isn't that much emphasis put on uh, these things. But Stephanie does actually mention in her book that, um, neuroscientists think that we should uh, call on neural rights to be added to the universal de- universal declaration of human rights because emerging neurotechnologies could alter what makes us human. Yeah, and uh, Stephanie also suggests that um, organizations and corporations uh, hire chief ethics officers. So anyway, let's jump into the interview with Stephanie uh, to find out what a technology ethicist is and how they're likely to affect all of our lives at some point. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. It's really lovely to have you here. And obviously, we're super excited to have you at DataFest in November. Uh, to kick things off, um, can you tell us what a technology ethicist is and what they do, maybe how that how they would affect people's lives? Yeah, I think it's one of those terms that can mean so many things, which I personally love because it gives us greater flexibility, which makes sense because technology is created at so many different stages, you would almost want to have somebody who's thinking about ethics at every stage, um, from idea all the way to execution and release into the market. So obviously, like lawyers um, and academics who are studying, you know, philosophy of technology, or looking already at data protection and privacy laws, um, anything to do with society, just on bare basics regulation, obviously your regulatory bodies. So in the UK, it would be like the information commissioner's office, the biometrics and surveillance camera commissioner. Um, It could be lawmakers who sit on the science and technology committee in the house of commons. Um, And obviously because we're talking about data fest being in Scotland, there's, there's branches for these sorts of things in the devolved governments also. So there's that, but you could potentially call yourself a technology ethicist. If you were just a reporter who focused on a technology ethics beat, right? So you might be 
looking at the way that CCTV cameras are being used in your community and whether or not they're coming from, for instance, a Chinese supplier that is also putting its cameras into concentration camps in the west of China. And you might be like, I don't want my tax money going for that. Um, let's get a different supplier or let's just not have as many cameras at all. Or if we do, we don't have facial recognition on them. Or if we do, we have to have like a public consultation. So it could be very, you know, overt and democratic, but it can also be the quiet designer who is, or maybe not quiet, one of my uh, best friends who did the, did the design uh, for all the graphics in the book is anything but quiet. Um, but you could be the designer who is shaping the user experience and the design of a product or a service, right? We think of technology as a tool, um, something physical, but we can also think of it really abstractly to be like, what is this person's journey as they're going through the ability to renew their passport online? How do I make that as seamless, as frictionless as possible? Which is in some ways really beautiful because it helps to inspire trust between citizens and the state. It's like a democratic covenant. So, you know, if you're a designer listening to this, you could be doing something that if it's in the private sector is instilling brand loyalty, which is great for money making purposes. But if you're doing it for something like gov.uk, any of your government services, making it easier for people to see their GP, uh, to pay their council tax or to get help on like, you know, energy prices soaring through the roof here and you need help. Making that process easier is often a design process, but it has political implications and ethical implications as well. So it's a super broad term, um, which is kind of wonderful. It's taken it out of the academy and out of the courtroom and taken it right into the heart of design. It could also be though the person who's doing due diligence when you're funding projects. So somebody has an idea and somebody has to fund it. You know, you might have that money in-house, but you might need to take out a loan or get partners or go see a venture capital fund or private equity fund or bank. So how did those people do their due diligence on whether or not to invest in a technology in a way that's going to be ethical and that won't bite them later or expose them to lawsuits or regulatory risk. That's broad. Yeah, I actually didn't think about designers being uh, technology ethicists, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, recently, I moved flat and I had to do so many different things with like changing my account tax, my internet, my energy suppliers, all of that. and so many of the websites and uh, apps and things that I had to use to do this weren't designed that well. And even I, as someone that is a profession at using technology, struggled to do some of the things. And it made me realize that if um, someone maybe who doesn't use technology very much, doesn't, doesn't have a smartphone, has only um, sometimes needs a bit of help with these things, they're kind of excluded for, from being able to sort their own new habitation out um, and actually one of our quest next questions is about that as well. Um, during the pandemic, um, the NHS has this app uh, that you can have your vaccine passports on and information about your vaccines and boosters. Well, this is a problem, as I was saying, um, not everyone had new enough sm smartphones to have this app on um, and maybe aren't very good at using those, um, particularly older people who are most vulnerable in the pandemic. What issues do you see with technology creating these two classes with the have and have not? So people that have a smartphone or don't have a smartphone or have technology, technology proficiency or don't have technology proficiency. Um, and in this case, it's not just the neutrality of the technology itself that we need to be worried about, but also 
the presence of the technology at all for different groups of people. So one of the problems is that we have like conflicting aims within ethics here in the UK. And I'm just going to confine my remarks to the UK because I feel like if we try to qualify everything with every other country around the world, we'll get uh, bogged down. So I'll specify if I mean a different country, but for, for this question, UK specific, which is that we are very interested in accessibility and inclusivity in terms of design for public service technology, um, civic tech, if you want. So we look at things like diversity, equity, inclusion, but then we go and we build an app that doesn't work very well on lots of phones. Not everybody had um, the latest phone. Not everybody has a phone at all. You know, we, it's very easy if you have all this stuff to just assume everyone's like you and like, we just know that's not true. And of course, it's going to be people who are financially vulnerable, who perhaps have some sort of difficulty going on in their lives. Maybe they're older. And that's not unique to the UK. We saw that in every country around the world. So there's this whole like thing about digital exclusion. So if you are using taxpayer funded money to build a digital solution that only works for X percent of your population, that's not okay. Now, I think during the pandemic, to be honest, it's really difficult for us all to remember it now because we've got the vaccines and the boosters, but to cast your mind back to the first year before we started rolling out those vaccines, the first 12 to 18 months really, we were losing people at such a, ter a terrifying rate. Um, it was an exponential curve. And we didn't know if we were going to find a vaccine. So we had to basically just throw the kitchen sink at this problem and normal design considerations of like return on investment and all of that, I think kind of were thrown out the window. And it was like, yeah, we know this isn't going to reach all sorts of people, including the most vulnerable people, particularly vulnerable to this virus, um, which tended to harm older people a lot more. But I think the government probably just decided, I don't want to speak on their behalf, but having studied it for two years and talked with lots of them, that like something was better than nothing and not to let like perfect be the enemy of the good. And so many other countries were trying it. I think that was just the bet they made. What we've learned in hindsight from that is, you know, you have to have paper backups for everything, not just for people who don't have it, but sometimes your app doesn't download or it's just a mess or, you know, glitches can happen. You would always want to have a physical copy of your vaccine and boosting records. You also need them to be able to talk to one another. So I've actually been vaccinated here in the UK and in the US because I happened to be at home when Omicron hit and I hadn't been boosted yet. And so I was in the US for so long that my American doctors were like, we're going to, we're just going to vaccinate you here because you have no record here. And the United States being backward does their vaccines on a paper card. So when I came back here to the UK, I wanted to show I've actually had two jabs of AstraZeneca in the UK and two jabs of Pfizer in the US. And now you're telling me I need to get a booster, but is that true? I've already been vaccinated four times. And I could not get, I could not find a place in London to get my, my American vaccines recognized. Right. So as a technologist, I was loving this because I'd go on the website and they would be like the closest place for you to go is in Norwich, which is like nowhere near London. I'm living in the capital of this country and I can't I can't just walk to my GP or to a vaccine center here and update this record. I can't scan it and do it online. You have nothing for me except to you know, take a train journey several hours to Norwich and back. And I tried it for like three weeks and I finally ended up just booking myself in for a fifth booster which was 90 seconds from my house. 
and I just got it. So I'm probably radioactive now. Um, but I'm just saying that to say with the best will in the world. And I think, I think what the NHS and colleagues spun up under ridiculously stressful circumstances very fast. And it's amazing. They had to do it for a population of 68 million people. It works really well. Could things be improved? Yes. And like, I'm sure they're learning from that. And I'm sure we will all have learned from that. So I don't want to like criticize it too much because I just think, again, we have to remember that first year, you know, we tore our society apart in so many ways over that. Um, nothing was being done perfectly, but we did the best we could. The key now is just to learn for, from it going forward. Okay, so another aspect that you of technology ethics that you discuss in the book is um, the responsibility of technology and where that lies, you know, morally and causally. So, you know, whether or not uh, the responsibility lies with the person who created the technology or the person who utilizes it. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, that sort of argument in relation to how you describe it in the book? Yes. So I think a lot of us can relate to being consumers of products and services, and we're also citizens. So we're, we're walking around in our society and we have to different degrees, agency over the kind of you know, where we put our money and where we vote. Not everyone obviously has the same, because if you are on a restricted income, that's going to give you less consumer choice. You're, you're under the cost there and that's harder. There's also the fact that like, yes, we can all make consumer choices, but you know, if you're running a technology company or a company that in, or a bank or funding outfit that invests in technology, you have a lot more power than the random consumer walking down the street whose power is perhaps done in aggregate when we band together as a society and reject certain products versus another. So I would never want to over egg the omelet and say, we've got, you know, we all have equal power and agency because that's just not true. Different people, have different degrees of privilege, not just financially, but in terms of their skills, their knowledge, their position in a company or their position in a value chain from idea to rollout. Um, and therefore, yes, if you're a you know, budding technologist or, or somebody who's working in some way with technology, you do have a lot of power. Do you have as much power as the CEO or like the funder? Maybe not. Um, maybe yes, <laughs> it depends on what you're doing. So I think in the book, what I just wanted to do was kind of play with that a bit and give a lot of real world examples of where that power is. You know, it's kind of like, if the problem of technology ethics is like a body and you're trying to find out where is the source of pain, sometimes when you're following pain through a muscle, right, or up a person's body, they might have pain in the bottom of their foot. They have plantar fasciitis, for example. But that's actually coming from tightness in their calf muscle, or it's actually coming from their lower back and their hips. And so you're going to have to, you're going to have to work on that to release the tendons in the foot. Right. But if they come in, they're like, the problem is in the foot and you're like, it is, but also not. <laughs> right. That's how I look at technology ethics a lot. It's like, where is the locus of power? Where is the locus of responsibility? Where is agency? Where is autonomy? Um, where is design and where is impact? And therefore, waking people up to that, I think, becomes quite exciting because I think it's a, nothing's more depressing probably than living in a world where there's just shit all around you that you feel you can't do anything about. Whereas if you're like, aha, 
okay, I work in human resources, but I can actually challenge this AI recruiting tool that we're doing, or we're using emotion detection technology in these interviews, but I'm, I'm reading that it's bunk. <laughs> we're not going to do this anymore. That's good for you as an HR professional. It protects your company from making really sketchy hiring decisions. And it will increase your chances of getting better talent because you're not inflicting that on people. And it's better for all of us who have to apply for jobs to not live in a world where this like weird tech is being used that has been debunked by people in the field, but for some reason is still being used elsewhere. So in that case, you're a human resources, hiring, recruiting, talent management person. You might not consider yourself remotely working with technology, but you do in that moment, in that instance, and what you do or don't do would have a massive impact on a whole bunch of people, as well as your own organization. So like, I started out the book feeling pretty grumpy back in 2018 when I first started working on it, because, you know, it's not hard to find problems. The whole field is a dumpster fire, and I think you can just get very burned out and tired. Weirdly, in the process of writing the book, with the backdrop of a pandemic and, you know, not seeing my family for two years in the States, like some pretty brutal context in which to write. I actually emerged as an optimist, <laughs> which is not what I was expecting. Um, and it's like renewed me and wanted, wanted me to sort of double down on my commitment to this field because I'm like, there's so much potential for us to do this better. Like we can only get better if people all just sort of wake up to a, what's happening and B, their role in it, be it little or huge, there's still something they can do. And that made me feel like we still have human freedom and agency. You know, the machines haven't taken over when we aren't all just living at like the mercy of <laughs> certain tech oligarchs. You know, we, we really can, we really can, if we want, make a difference. Um, so that's like, was a nice surprise. <laughs> I, mean, I think you must be one of the only people I've ever met who wrote about this kind of thing and came out an optimist and not the exact opposite. <laughs> I think probably because I started from such a dark place where I was like, oh my God, this is awful. I'm going to write this up. And like, if I never work in tech again, I will have said my piece. And actually I was like, oh, hang on. There's all these opportunities to fix stuff all the way through. And even if it's like 5% here, 5% here, 5% here, improvement down a value chain, down a decision-making chain, whatever, like, there's no shortage of problems to work on. There's so much to do. Um, if everybody like did their little bit and worked on their 5%, we're just going to get better outcomes. And that is really exciting. And like, if you are burned out because you're like, oh, I don't want to work for the man. I don't want to work for like some massive corporation. There's so many other organizations now that you can go and work with. You can just improve stuff in your kid's school and be like, I would actually like there to not be facial verification technology for the children to pay for their lunch. Thank you. Right? Like that would be an amazing outcome if more parents and teachers understood what they were signing up to, right? Or teaching children about their data rights. Like we've got this whole generation that is growing up really having to navigate stuff that a bunch of us never did, or that um, those of you who are younger than me, which would not be hard because I feel ancient, I'm 46. So <laughs> it's a whole crew of you who are much more digital natives. There's a lot we can still teach, you know, the really little ones. I'm talking, you know, sort of people under the age of like 14 um, to like five. I mean, it, there's really fascinating research out there. Those kids are very vulnerable they need protection in all sorts of ways. The UK is doing some of the world's leading work on children's data rights. So like, that's a really, you know, if you want to feel good, like go work on that for a bit. There's climate change, which is obviously super depressing, but the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity to make a difference. 
is the way I would look at it. So I think it's kind of like that. It's almost like what isn't a technology ethics challenge slash opportunity? In one part of the book, you mentioned that an artificial intelligence is forbidden from holding a patent in the UK. Whereas uh, in some other parts of the world, such as South Africa, uh, this is allowed and AI can hold, uh, hold a patent. Do you think this runs the risk of creating a two-tier global system for innovation? Uh, I, don't know, I don't even know if it'll be two-tiered. I think it'll probably be multi-tiered. Um, and I feel, because you know, I wrote that book and we published it in February, I'm just looking online because I feel like I just saw another country that allowed AIs to hold patents and it's more, you know, this is a this is a niche topic in the sense that like that's not going to affect most people because most people are not, you know, <laughs> filing patents all the time. But it's really important for innovations. We like absolutely have to discuss it, and every country around the world um, is going to be super super interested in it. And the question, I guess, is like, why? Why would you give an AI a patent holding right and responsibility? and not the humans that created that AI. Because I always think it comes down to like, who can you sue? <laughs> Which reveals my, <laughs> my American background. But what I mean by that is we have transparency, we have explainability, we have accountability as the sort of pillars of AI ethics, right? And that thing about accountability implies how would you hold something to account? The creation of a tool, a technology, whatever, if I have a problem, I need to be able to take it to a regulator. And if I want, I might want to take it to trial, right? I might want to have like a criminal or civil prosecution. So how do you take an AI to trial? Um, how does it get punished? How does it get put in jail? <laughs> or how does it get barred from ever, you know, creating anything again? Like these are things that we can do for humans. I'm intrigued as to what we think we're doing on this accountability, responsibility, liability piece that's, you know, it's at the end. Um, I still feel like we haven't really gone there. There's probably some good AI legal scholars who are on the case, but I haven't, I haven't read anything yet, which isn't to say that it doesn't exist, um, that explains this or that goes into it in enough detail. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, gov.uk has like intellectual property and investment in artificial intelligence, you know, which you, you sort of think about that wasn't even there I'm sure a few years ago, like we're living in this sort of world now where there's a whole sector of people who are playing in that space. It's trippy. So yeah, it's going, you know, I think it will create something that's, that's multi, you know, the EPO board says that AI can't be inventor, but offers alternative, right? Like it's going to get messy because we're in a new, we're in a new space still. It's not settled. And laws having to update itself, accountancies having to update itself. Like again, a lot of our sort of incumbent institutions that would be even used to adjudicate in matters like this. You know, I talk with a lot of them, and I think they don't they don't feel one hundred percent on top of this either. So, watch this space. I predict I predict it being messy, but therefore interesting. <laughs> I think we have the same problem in the arts as well. Um, Lily and I are heavily involved in the music world, and. Um, there's a an artist called Holly Herndon who has created an AI that perfectly replicates her voice. So anyone can sing into a microphone that runs through this AI and it will replicate her voice. And she's let people just do whatever they want with that. And it's raised all these interesting questions of who then really 
who owns that music? Is it the person who sang? Is it the person who created the AI because she did it in a team of people? Is it her because it's her voice? You know, there's all these, pretty soon we're going to have tours like Elvis, you know, will be on tour with somebody doing an Elvis impersonation, singing through an AI that perfectly replicates Elvis's voice. And that just raises so many really bizarre questions about um, the future of what art and music really is. And it also means that we don't even get relief from the legacy rock acts, even when they die. They're still going to be touring. The Rolling Stones are going to be going well into the new millennium. It really makes me want someone to interview Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood like now to say, are you guys planning this? Because they're so they're so like hot. I feel like Mick Jagger is like totally on that. If there's ever a man who has a plan for immortality, it's Mick Jagger. No, for real. For real. <laughs> that guy's not messing around. He works out like three hours a day. It made me think also that maybe our ideas of what ownership is will change because we just won't be able to keep the same definition anymore as it's impossible to trace and track or assign. Yeah, or it also like raises the interesting prospect of how do you how do you delete your stuff? Like maybe no, maybe not everyone wants to be repurposed and turned into a zombie act or a zombie person, zombie entity, um, or reassembled in different ways. So like that's something that kind of concerns me. Is somebody was talking to me? I was at a conference back in, I think, June or May, talking about the metaverse with someone who's like a self-described metaverse evangelist. <laughs> and he was like, isn't this great? Like you can have every single video and photo and voice recording of you, and it will be used to create this sort of avatar of you that could like live indefinitely. And like your grandkids and your great grandkids could talk, like, talk with you and dialogue with you. And like, don't get me wrong. I would love to be able to talk with my great grandparents. Um, I trained as an historian. I would like I would just die. That would be amazing. But my rebuttal to him was, I don't want to live in Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse where he could like turn me into a slave <laughs> or, you know, they're like, like the law and regulation human rights framework for this is really disturbing. And I don't, I don't like the idea of this stuff being purposed in a way that I wouldn't have control over. Um, do I trust any of these people to think about any of, you know, the sort of Worst case scenarios of that through? No. <laughs> so I was like, I want, you know, I'm in the market for like a delete all button. So like when I die and my poor family obviously will have to you know, wrap up my life here in paper and you know, all the paperwork is filed. I then want like a sort of delete all button that just torches my LinkedIn, my Twitter, any email account that I've ever had, you know, my health records, just all of it. I want it gone. I don't want anyone using my data, which I know must sound like, uh, complete paranoia, but, you know, I'm a researcher and I've worked in technology. I know what I would do with all of that data if I had a very different ethical framework. So, you know, <laughs> hate the game, not the player. I want, I want to delete. Yeah. It sounds like you could even lose ownership of yourself. Yeah. And your family would too. Like maybe you're like, maybe my, maybe I don't want my dad being turned into an avatar that's being used to, to like sell weapons or something really questionable that he's dead. And we as his family have no rights over that. Or, you know, it's weird. It's trippy. And like, the thing is, is you can make a market for anything. You can make a market for anything. So I think people just still don't, I know that we're not supposed to say data is the new oil. Lots of people get really upset when you say that, but I think there's something still data is valuable data is useful, particularly in aggregate, but also in the personal. It doesn't have to be an aggregate. If it's affecting me or if it's affecting my family, that's enough. And that should matter. And I thought we were supposed to still, you know, 
there's something to be said about, it's not just having an updated bill of rights, like a digital bill of rights. It's probably something about like an updated declaration of human rights, a universal declaration of human rights for the 21st century. Cause I don't think that that's particularly where it needs to be right now. Again, amazing opportunity. Imagine being the lawyers that, that craft that. Um, we're going to need it. The problem being that most of the time humans don't put that stuff into place until something horrific has happened. I mean, we know that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights comes after the Second World War with all of its horrors, not before. Yeah, you mentioned uh, in the book the concept of a, a wicked problem, you know, one that has innumerable causes and no one single solution. Um, and that seems to sum up technology ethics perfectly. You know, things do tend to only change after something terrible happens. Um, Hopefully that won't happen. Uh, do you think that there's anything that could happen that would spark this kind of um, bit of a, like a revolution in how we think about technology ethics and start to implement these things before disaster strikes? Or do you think we have to kind of hit rock bottom and then climb our way back up? I think that there's an incredible opportunity to change how we educate everyone from the age of you know sort of five or even younger, frankly, all the way up through high school definitely in uni. And I'm not just talking STEM subject people, like liberal arts and humanities people as well, like everyone. It just needs to be part of being like, welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> you need to know this. Everyone should be being taught about it. Because whether it's just about your rights or your responsibilities, or just to be aware of like, this is happening around you, um, that would make, we could shift things a lot within one generation just on that. I also think that like our elected officials definitely need a reboot in their knowledge and skills. Some of them, to their credit, have really made great strides on that and take a great interest in it. But I think it's a self-selecting group. We've got to hit, you know, every single MP and member of the House of Lords and everybody in the devolved governments needs to be as fluent in this as they are expected to be on matters of health, education, defense, um, environment, right? Like all of this, you know, this is sort of what does it mean to be a lawmaker in the 21st century? Like this has to be fundamental. And it's not enough to think that kind of really sexist pejorative thing of like, oh, this is for geeky teenage boys and hoodies who live in you know their parents' house. Like, no, it's not. That's it's like totally insulting to all of the people who are using and creating tech all the time. And it's insulting to all of us because we're all we're all living in technology's world. And many of us are cre are creating it in some way. So I think that's that. And that's not just for like teachers. That's also going to be for how our journalists are reporting stories and covering stories, which again, I think the UK is a real testament to how it's changed in its reporting and coverage. I mean, the Financial Times is all over biometrics technology. You know, they really care. Um, you know, the Times covers things, the Guardian covers things, the Telegraph does. They have dedicated tech teams and it's not just gadgets, which is what this stuff used to be. It's much more about how does technology fit in society and how is it changing things? Um, what does it mean to have algorithms deciding the outcomes of A-level exams during a pandemic, right? Like we saw how well that went. <laughs> so that's not just for them. It's for Department of Work and Pensions. It's for courts and policing, all of it. So I think like, the UK is a really interesting place because it's small enough to have a national conversation, whereas the US is just so damn big. Um, and there's you know, 330 million people it's very fragmented. So I think it's a lot harder in some ways to do that stuff at the national level. One thing that we could also do is like, we've got to stay very, very close with our, our friends over in the European Union um, because a lot of the regulation that's coming from the EU is actually going to be affecting how we live here. 
And, you know, we can ignore that and say that we've taken back control to our heart's content, but they're the ones that can move a market because they're even bigger than the U.S. in terms of citizenship and standards. We saw that with the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, other countries and companies around the world, not just in the EU, had to jump pretty quick after that came into effect. And I expect something similar to happen once the AI Act is published um, and in, you know, in force. So again, it would be easy to be like, oh no, <laughs> we have to wait for the apocalypse and the killer robots to come for us to do anything. But I, I think there's so much we could be doing right now. Like the opportunity is there and it's ripe. It just requires people who have that, that appetite to go for it. And that's tricky when you, you know, everybody's exhausted with the pandemic and Brexit and cost, cost of living crisis and the like, like it's a lot to ask people to then also care about this, but that's where your, your institutions hopefully will kick in and kick some of that off. I think anyone who's involved in writing the rules around technology should be made to convert a Word document into a PDF. <laughs> uh, and if they can't do that, they just don't get a say. <laughs> There's probably some sort of minimum viable <laughs> driving license that you would need. <laughs> yeah. Stephanie's book, Technology is Not Neutral, A Short Guide to Technology Ethics, is available to order via uh, the publisher, London Publishing Partnership, or ask your local bookshop to order you a copy. And with that said, I think it might be time for some wild speculation. This is the part of the show where we ask our guests to go beyond the scope of their research or expertise and engage in some wild speculation about their field. Stephanie, what do you think the future of technology holds from an ethical perspective? Speculate. I like my speculation to still be grounded a little bit in evidence because otherwise it's just fantasy. And I'm looking online as we're chatting right now. Sifted, which is this Financial Times affiliated news outlet that looks at technology here in Europe. So it's a really specific. They've got a lovely little graphic that says, what do Gen Z, Gen Z founders want from investors? The answer is ethics. So my speculation would be, uh, you know, within however many years we want to set the scale, five, 10, 20 years, ethics is going to be as much a consideration, not just in tech companies, but general companies um, and even in the government. And for people who say that it is right now, I would re respectfully push back and go, no, <laughs> not, not in the way that I see it. And by that, I mean, it's going to be baked into every stage. You would have a team of people, not just lawyers looking at law and compliance or even risk, but who are looking at the bigger picture. We might call it ESG concerns of today of like environment, social governance, but we might want to literally step back and look at it from the ethics framework that I've outlined of, you know, metaphysics, logic, epistemology, political philosophy, which isn't quite the same as an ESG or a sustainability framework, but it could involve that. So I think we would have some sort of holistic team within these organizations that is parsing all products and services against these ethical criteria. And I would expect to see a much more like radicalized and woke um, legislative branch. Because again, this is happening in the committees, but it's not happening across our legislative making bodies in the way that I think it needs to. As we get younger people aging and going into office, and those people are people who have either been like the generation Xers had to make the transition or the ones who are even younger and have only ever known this world. They are going to make very different laws. They're going to have really different 
thoughts about ethics because they will have been on the receiving end in their own childhood, in their own workplace environment, in their own experience of parenting as digital natives. Um, I think they're going to think about it a lot more. So I think I think ethics is going to go mainstream in the future. We'll see it being discussed more at the World Economic Forum. We'll see it being discussed at like the UN Security Council in a bigger way. It's going to be just as much a part of the discourse as climate or human rights, and indeed should be part of that. Stephanie will be appearing at Data Summit on the 3rd and 4th of November 2022 at the EICC in Edinburgh. Listeners can use the code TLQPODCAST, all caps, to receive an exclusive 20% off ticket prices. So make sure you get yours now. Go to datafest.global for all the information you could possibly need. So finally, on to the last question. Each episode, we pose our listeners a question and invite people from around the world to offer their thoughts. We'll read the most interesting ones out on the next episode. Our question this week is, what is the future of privacy? So we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, You can tweet it at us, uh, at datafest underscore, or you can email us, datafest at thedatalab.com. You can also get in touch if you just want to say hello, or if you want to suggest a topic that we cover, or if you want to suggest somebody that we should speak to, or if you want to make any corrections, or just add your thoughts. We'd love to hear from all of you. So that's it from us today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for listening. And join us again next time for another episode of The Last Question. 